This is episode number 265 with top instructor in the space of big data, Frank Kane. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. This episode of the Super Data Science Podcast is brought to you by our very own Data Science Insider. The Data Science Insider is a weekly newsletter for data scientists, which is designed specifically to help you find out what have been the latest updates and what is the most important news in the space of data science, artificial intelligence, and other technologies. It is completely free and you can sign up at superdatascience.com DSI. And the way this works is that every week there's plenty of updates and seemingly important information coming out in the world of technology. But at the same time, it is virtually impossible for a single person on a weekly basis to go through all of this and find out what is actually really relevant to a career of a data scientist and what is actually very important. And that's why our team curates the top five updates of the week puts them into an email and sends it to you. So once you sign up for the Data Science Insider, every single Friday, you will receive this email in your inbox. It doesn't spam your inbox, it just arrives and it has the top five updates with brief descriptions. And that's what I like the most about it, the descriptions. So you don't actually even have to read every single article. So our team has already read these articles for you and put the summaries into the email. So you can simply just read the updates in the email and be up to speed in a matter of seconds. And if you like a certain article, you can click on it and read into it further. And so whether you want great ideas that can be used to boost your next project or you're just curious about the latest news in technology, the Data Science Insider is perfect for you. So once again, you can sign up at www.superdatascience.com slash DSI. So make sure not to miss this opportunity and sign up for the Data Science Insider today. And that way you will join the rest of our community and start receiving the most important technology updates relevant to your career already this week. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, the ladies and gentlemen. Super excited to have you back here on the show today. And the guest for today is somebody who I've wanted to interview for quite a while now, Frank Kane. Frank is an expert in the space of big data. He worked at Amazon for over a decade and you might actually know him quite well from his courses on Udemy where he's one of the top instructors in the space of data science and big data. And today's conversation was very interesting because we approached it from two spaces, from the space of data science and the space of big data. And in this podcast, you'll find out how the two areas have been different but are now slowly but surely converging into something that is very intertwined and why it is important or why it is becoming more and more important for a data scientist to be well adept in the space of big data as well. 
Um, also, in this podcast, we'll talk about Frank's background, which was very interesting, spending uh, over a decade at Amazon and uh, working on lots of different systems there. You'll find out very useful tips on recommender systems such as user-based and item-based collaborative filtering, as well as other types of recommender systems and where this space of recommender systems is going. So you can probably already tell that this podcast is quite heavy on recommender systems. So if that's your thing, then this podcast is definitely for you. And you'll also find out why recommender systems are important across all spaces, not just in retail. So how many different industries can use recommender systems. We'll also touch on singular value decomposition or SVD, model-based methods, deep learning, and Amazon Destiny. And finally, towards the end of this podcast, we will talk about hiring. So Frank had a huge say at Amazon on who's hired and who's not hired into uh, the teams. And he's got some really exciting tips to share with you on this podcast. So can't wait for you to check out all the great insights from Frank here. And without further ado, I bring to you Frank Kane, one of the top experts and instructors in the space of big data. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Super excited to have you back here on the show because I've got a great colleague of mine and a great online instructor and entrepreneur on the phone, Frank Kane, calling in from Orlando, Florida. Frank, how are you going today? Doing great, Carol. How are you? I'm doing well as well. Such an honor to talk to you again. Uh, we met at Udemy Live, I think it was last year, and I had some interesting chats. And now we're here on the podcast. How's things been for you over the past almost a year now? Yeah, it's been going great. You know, uh, things continue to grow. And, uh, you know, as I'm sure you know, there seems to be a boundless demand for uh, online education in the fields of uh, data science and machine learning and big data. So, you know, we're all kind of riding that wave. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, exciting to see new courses popping up uh, from you. And um, you mentioned you're working on some really exciting things right now. What, what are the courses that you're working on right now? Well, I just released a uh, update to our Elasticsearch course. So uh, kind of lately, I've been focusing on the big data side of things. And Elasticsearch is a really interesting technology that kind of diverged from its original purpose. That's kind of the, the cool thing about it. So you hear about Elasticsearch and you think it's just for search engines, right? Like powering search on Wikipedia or something. But it's sort of morphed into this tool for doing large-scale data analytics and like web log dashboards and things like that. So that's the latest thing I've been up to. Uh, prior to that, I released a new course on recommender systems, which... My time is something we want to talk about as well. Yeah, very cool. And a big shout out goes to Manning Publications for helping us arrange this podcast. And it's really funny, like you mentioned, they reached out to us to arrange the podcast and uh, to promote your new work while we already knew each other. So like you said, it's very serendipitous how this, these things happen sometimes. Yeah, I love that word serendipitous. And, you know, I mean, that's a big part of like what we do in recommender systems, too, is what we call serendipitous discovery. This is like a serendipitous connection, you know, small world kind of a thing. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Um, OK, so, yeah, we got so much to talk about. Uh, you have such a broad, I mean, such an interesting career path with you know, your time at Amazon and how you move to courses. So to kick us off for I'm sure like a lot of our listeners those uh, those of you who take my courses on um, Udemy or Super Data Science, or those of you who take Frank's courses, 
there's a huge overlap in the sense like there's a lot of people who already know you. But for somebody who doesn't know you or doesn't know you well, give us a quick rundown. Like who is Frank Kane and uh, what has your career been like? Where has it taken you? Yeah, man, that's a that's a long story. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I kind of started off as a software engineer in the video game development industry, of all things. Wow. And um, from that, I went on to developing flight simulators. And one day I got a call out of the blue from Amazon.com in Seattle. Mm. They said, hey, you know, we're looking for good engineers. Uh, do you want to do a phone interview? I'm like, sure. And next thing I knew, I was like moving to Seattle, right? And uh, <laughs> they hired me into their uh, personalization department. And that's basically what we call recommender systems today. So this is back in like uh, 2003, I think. Mm -hmm. So, you know, real early days of this field. And like we didn't even call it. Yeah, yeah data like science it, didn't even exist back then. That's exactly what I was going to say. Like that wasn't even a thing. Like we didn't, that, that term wasn't even coined yet, but yeah. you know, we were doing it. So it was like minus, it was kind of a, the minus seventh year of data science. Yeah. And we were kind of like, you know, inventing it as we went. Right. Yeah. So, um, it was exciting to be a part of that. And, uh, yeah, I, I like stuck it out at, uh, Amazon for 10 years, uh, almost 10 years anyway. Wow. And worked my way up from software engineer to a senior manager and, by the end of my career there, I was actually uh, running the engineering department of imdb.com, which is a subsidiary of Amazon. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that was fun. It's a big movie website if you're not familiar with it. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, after uh, 10 years, you know, it was time for something new. My uh, my family was like itching to get out of the rainy uh, environment of Seattle. <laughs> mm -hmm. So uh, we decided to make a go of it on our own and packed up and moved down here to Orlando and uh, been working for myself ever since. Mm. Orlando is great, right? Like I, I was there once and you guys have uh, Universal Studios uh, parks, theme parks there, right? Yeah, Universal, Disney World, SeaWorld. It's uh, definitely a fun place to be, especially if you have kids. <laughs> That's awesome. How many kids do you have? Uh, two daughters. They're both grown up now. But, um, you know, when we moved here, they were still young enough to uh, to enjoy it. <laughs> so awesome. it's been fun. That's yeah. awesome. Okay. And so uh, you, 10 years on Amazon, amazing, really, really cool. And um, you, you moved there from... A software engineer, always senior manager, and then uh, managing the whole department at uh, IMDb. How how is that like? How is it like working at Amazon? It was exciting. I mean, the thing that I love the most about it was that you're always surrounded by really smart people, and mm -hmm. you're never going to have a problem finding people that are smarter than you to learn from, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, a lot of people say that if you're not learning, you're in the wrong job, right? That's so true. you're always learning at Amazon because they just they're just so picky about who they hire. And there are just some amazing people there that you can learn new techniques, uh, you know, new ways of thinking from and not just in engineering, too. Right. Like also from the business side, you know, just being able to sort of absorb how Jeff Bezos thinks in itself is hugely valuable as well. Right. Mm -hmm. So it gotcha. was uh, trippy sometimes. <laughs> gotcha. Did you ever get to meet him? Yeah. Yeah. Quite a bit. I mean, back then, Amazon was a much smaller company than it oh, is today. So, true. you know, we were all in the same building and, you know, you'd. Uh, find yourself in the men's room next to him for all you knew. But yeah, I had a lot of meetings with him and uh, got to talk to him quite a bit, actually. What was he like as a person? Uh, he's intense, you know, uh, but super smart. Uh, definitely the smartest guy that I've ever met in my life. And that's that's saying a lot, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, just his ability to sort of like, you know, analyze any situation and just be right about it, you know, really quickly is uh, pretty admirable. That's awesome. That's fantastic. All right, and so then you moved to Orlando and uh, you founded Sundog Software. What, why the name, Sundog? Oh, that's a long story. So it actually has nothing at all to do with data mining, data, uh, sorry, data science or machine learning. 
after I left Amazon, you know, I had a non-compete agreement like a lot of people do. So I couldn't really do anything directly related to what I was doing at Amazon. Mm -hmm. uh, so instead, I got into the field of visual simulation, basically making um, 3D simulations of clouds and weather and uh, oceans for simulation and training products. Um, so that's where a Sundog software came from. A Sundog if you don't know, it's actually an atmospheric effect that is like a rainbow on either side of the sun under certain conditions. Mm. Uh, so since I was building software that simulates the sky, we kind of drew our name from that because it was basically the only thing that wasn't trademarked yet. Mm -hmm. uh, so that is the genesis of Sundog. It wasn't actually named after a dog. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. And uh, so you were uh, providing or uh, creating this uh, software for simulation. And how did that morph into online education? I'm always, you know, curious about these stories because so far yeah. nothing in your story uh, even flagged that you were going to be a super successful online instructor. When did that transition happen? Yeah, I didn't see it coming either. Um, so, I mean, how did it go down? Basically, you know, after I quit Amazon and like decided to like go on my own, I was, you know, I was kind of freaking out, right? Because, you know, I left behind these like hugely valuable stock options and stuff. And like I came down here with enough money to get by for a while. But, you know, I was still pretty nervous about it, right? Yeah. You know, if you've never been self-employed before, it's a very scary thing to jump into. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I started doing some freelance work on the side to sort of supplement what I was getting from selling my own software that I had written. And one of those freelance gigs was actually doing curriculum development for a company called General Assembly in New York City. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, they were looking for someone to put together a uh, data science curriculum uh, for an in-person training class that they were putting together. So I did that. Mm -hmm. And somehow, you know, because, you know, I had this like Amazon pedigree, they like plastered my face all over their website saying, look, this course was developed by an Amazon guy. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and basically, uh, so what happened then was someone from Udemy was like trying to recruit new instructors in the field of machine learning and data science. And they, they somehow found me splunking on the internet and gave me a call out of the blue and said, hey, Frank, uh, we're looking for instructors on Udemy to teach uh, big data and data science topics. Want to give it a shot? And I'm like, well, why not? How hard, how hard can it be, right? Yeah. <laughs> little, little did I know it's actually really hard. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's kind of like how my first uh, online course came to be. They like reached out to me and I said, well, let's give it a shot. And the funny thing is the first course that I made was really kind of a flop. Like the first month that we put it out, it made like 200 bucks or something. I'm like, well, you know, that crap. <laughs> well, we tried. Um, but after putting in so much effort into a course, I mean, as you know, it takes many months to put one of these things together, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, I'm like, I didn't want to give up on it that soon, right? So I'm like, fine, I'll, I'll try making another course and see if I can sort of like build up on this and not give up quite yet. And as a result of that, things started to actually take off. So um, it, it was just sort of like a hockey stick of growth after that for a few years mm -hmm. where, you know, you, you kind of have this like compound interest effect where you make one good course and the students from that course are people that you can sell your next course to and so on and so forth. And like you just keep building upon that audience. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so that's kind of how it, how it all snowballed. Very, very interesting. And um, uh, yeah, totally, totally can relate to that story. It's um, starts of slow. But as long I guess as long as you have that inner drive or you get this feeling of not just accomplishment, but fulfillment when somebody takes your course and feels that they've learned something and that they can now use these skills. And, and especially if they tell you about it, if they say, hey, Kirill or Frank, you know, like I took your course and I feel empowered to do something in my job. Or I actually already did something with that knowledge and, uh, you know, I uh, finished a project, I got a promotion or I helped, I helped a colleague learn. It really gives you that additional inspiration to keep moving forward and not to give up. Would you say that you get that feeling as well? 
Oh, yeah, there's so much to keep you motivated, right? I mean, uh, like you said, just that positive feedback of how you're actually changing people's lives in a positive way. I mean, what's not to love about that? Mm. Uh, LinkedIn has been great for that, right? Like I'll see people posting online, hey, I actually, you know, got this certification because of you or I got this job because of you or thanks for your career advice on, you know, getting an interview at Amazon. Thanks to you, I actually got a job. I'm like, that's awesome. Like, you know, everyone wants to like make the world a better place, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's awesome. And also just the scope of the impact, right? I mean, like, I had no idea there was so huge of an audience for this stuff out there in the world. <laughs> and, you know, if you like think about how many football stadiums you'd have to fill up to put all of our students in them at one time, like yeah. it's, it's some crazy number, right? Like it's just hard to visualize. Even. It's crazy. Yeah. Like I'm looking at your uh, Udemy profile. You have 248,000 students for those out there. It's like almost a quarter of a million students. Like that's that's crazy. Fit yeah. And that's just on Udemy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then there's also like Manning and, you know, all the other platforms that we're on, too. So, you know, it, it adds up to quite a bit. Yeah, for sure. Um, And so what I wanted to touch on here is that like our area of expertise and area of where we teach is overlaps to some extent, but it's also slightly different. So you mm -hmm. mostly teach in the space of big data, plus, you know, how it overlaps with data science, machine learning. And that's what I wanted to touch on, like with uh, the passing years since you know uh, data science came around and big data appeared, uh, these two have been kind of like close and also um, the relationship between <clears throat> uh, them has been also developing over the years. So can you tell us a bit about that? How has the relationship between big data, data science and machine learning, on the other hand, how has it developed over the past couple of years and what is it like now? Yeah, I mean, kind of my perception of it is that it, they started off going in kind of their own directions, right? And now they're kind of all starting to converge, it seems. I mean, that's kind of my high-level take of it. So, like, originally when we started teaching data science, it was all about, you know, messing around with a, you know, Jupyter notebook on your own individual PC somewhere or individual Linux host or whatever. And, you know, just mess around, messing around with smaller data sets. And to be fair, you can analyze a lot of data on one machine if it's a beefy enough machine. Mm -hmm. You know, then we have, you know, machine learning, which is off, you know, playing around with, uh, you know, neural networks and stuff these days. And you can still do quite a bit on a single GPU or a machine with multiple GPUs. And then almost orthogonally, we have this world of big data where people are using things like, you know, Hadoop-based platforms like Cloudera or Apache Spark and things like that to distribute the processing of data at massive scale. Mm -hmm. And there's been these efforts to kind of like, you know, slap one on top of another, like, you know, Spark has their uh, MLlib library for doing machine learning on Spark, um, you know, and obviously uh, tools like Cloudera have tools for doing large scale data an analysis uh, using their platforms. But it's only recently, I think, that it's starting to converge, right? You know, we have things like uh, the data pipeline on Spark, uh, sorry, the uh, deep learning pipeline on Spark coming out where you can actually do large scale machine learning and deep learning on Apache Spark. So that's coming together. You know, we have TensorFlow being distributed on clusters. You know, that's coming together. Um, so it seems like there's still like 10 different ways to do everything, but at least we're starting to all, you know, come together at the same thing. That's not just about data science. It's not just about machine learning. It's not just about big data. It's about doing machine learning, you know, on, in, in a big data environment, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And why do you think now? Why is the time now that they're converging? Um, that's a great question. I mean, I think it's just sort of a natural process that's happening. You know, there's definitely a lot of, uh, interest in market forces and that are, that are behind this. Um, but really I think it's just that these technologies have all been maturing at a similar rate and now they're all at the point where they're like, okay, how do we all, you know, 
get together and, and do something even better together, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. And um, what has been your favorite course to teach? What has been your favorite topic to share with the world? Oh, um, you know, I, I always have a soft spot for recommender systems because that was kind of what I specialized in at my time at Amazon. So, uh, you know, if I had a if I had to choose one child that I love the most, <laughs> it would probably be my recommender system course. Okay, gotcha. Um, so, uh, you you told you did recommender system at Amazon. Are you able to tell us a bit about that, like uh, to go into a bit of detail without sharing any IP or sensitive information? Yeah, I mean, it was seven years ago when I left Amazon. Mm. So, you know, everything that I, I can tell you is, you know, well beyond the range of their non-disclosure agreements because, you know, it's it's history at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but there's still some good stories about it that I good. Let's talk, talk about, about it. Sounds like, uh, you know, it's still a very relevant and really cool topic. And a lot of companies make um, really enhance their sales, you know, Netflix, Amazon, um, online marketplaces. They even Udemy itself, right? Like you take a course and then you get recommended other courses on what to take. So mm-hmm. please do tell us about that. Like how... What was uh, what was your role at Amazon? I mean, like, what kind of um, recommender systems were you exploring back then? Yeah, I mean, uh, let's see. I mean, originally I was working on things like people who bought also bought. I actually ran the team for that for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're shopping on Amazon.com and you're looking at a specific item, there'll be a little widget that says, you know, people who bought this also bought this, or people who viewed this also bought this, or, you know, some something along those lines. Uh, so that was kind of like, you know, the heart of the whole thing. And, you know, this is all published publicly, so I can definitely talk about it. Um, so kind of like the, the main component of doing any recommender system back in those days was this, uh, item to item similarities matrix, right? Mm-hmm. So we would like take these, uh, vectors of everybody that bought a given item, right. And like make this 2d matrix that try to find similarity distances between every item based on what customers they had in common. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, you can create a database it's basically like okay here's item id whatever corresponds to this book and it is similar to this list of other books you know sorted in order by similarity right Um, could could you tell us a a bit more about that so how is the vector created what are the dimensions of this vector well it's a very very sparsely populated uh, matrix right Mm -hmm. so the the main problem of recommender systems is that most people did not buy most items. So mm-hmm. a given person only bought a very, very small percentage of everything that Amazon sells, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, basically these are all sparse vectors uh, that you think of as a matrix, but, you know, when you actually get down to the code of actually constructing that matrix, it's not really a 2D matrix. Mm-hmm. You know, basically you have, you know, uh, customers on one dimension and items on the other dimension, right? And mm-hmm. you just try to find how it's all interrelated. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay. But yeah, I mean, that's kind of like, you know, the, the building block for doing other cool stuff. Because once you know what items are similar to other items, first of all, that's a very permanent relationship, you know, relatively speaking. So, you know, a, a math book will always be similar to another math book is how we used to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these, these relationships aren't going to change overnight. So you can get away with com- computing that relatively infrequently, right? Mm-hmm. And once you have that, you can actually do things like build up personalized recommendations by saying, okay, here's a vector of everything that I personally have liked either by uh, buying it or, you know, looking at it or rating it or something, some indication of interest, I can go out and get all the similar items that are similar to everything that I've expressed interest in, you know, deduplicate those, you know, score them, and that becomes your personalized recommendations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's what we call uh, item-based collaborative filtering, basically. Okay, gotcha. And uh, 
So that, that was back then. How has how have recommender systems uh, progressed now? Like uh, in the courses, for instance, you teach these days, how, how are they different? Yeah, I mean, obviously the thing that's changed everything has been the advent of deep learning, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, now the modern way of doing it is to actually build a big deep neural network. And again, the challenge there is getting a neural network to work with sparse data. But uh, Amazon, for one, has cracked that nut. They have a system they've published called Destiny, D-S-S-T-N-E. You can find it on GitHub mm -hmm. uh, that does that. And it works really, really well. I was actually very impressed with the results. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it's still hard to beat the old the old school way of doing it. Uh, Item-based collaborative filtering still produces great results. So while it is true that a deep neural network can be a great tool for solving just about any machine learning problem you can dream up, uh, these simpler approaches still give it a run for its money. <laughs> yeah, and they also, <clears throat> they're more cost-effective, I guess, in terms of computing power and time, you know, to create and things like that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, <laughs> you'd be amazed how little uh, computing power we needed to actually produce those item-to-item -item similarities mm -hmm. because it was all very highly optimized code written in C. Like, you know, it, it was really, really tight. Um, but, you know, we used to really... A very Amazonian way of thinking is to really favor simple solutions over more complex solutions given the choice, right? Mm -hmm. So... You know, given a, a solution that will run on, you know, one system versus one that's going to run on 100, if the end result to the customer is going to be the same, we're going to take the simpler solution because it's going to be easier to maintain, right? Yeah, makes sense. So it's uh, just a question of how, you know, if it's not a, it's not the same result, if it's only 80% of uh, the original results, you know, that's the question. Like, do you, do you use the simpler solution and get 80% of the results or do you go for the more complex one and aim for the 100% of the results? That's kind of like a trade-off that probably... Uh, yeah, I mean, we were definitely spent a, a lot of time trying to squeeze every percentage of improvement that we could get out of it because it was such a huge lever, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, you can imagine, I, I think it's been published that like 20% of Amazon sales was attributed to personalization at that time. And that's not really the real number, which I can't tell you the real number, but that's the, the one that people talked about. And, yeah. You know, it's not that far off. Yeah, um, no, it's crazy. But... Um, but yeah, like when you have like a lever that big, like you, you think about how many billions of dollars Amazon makes every month, mm -hmm. a 1% improvement is a really big deal, right? So, mm -hmm. um, you know, if it really came down to a more complicated solution, will give us a 1% boost in, in sales and oh yeah, we would do that. Uh, but generally speaking, we didn't have to, you know, I mean, the algorithms themselves can still be relatively simple and you can still have a simple framework for, you know, blending different algorithms together. So it, there are ways of experimenting and trying simple changes and simple solutions that will achieve those results. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, gotcha. And what would you say to somebody who, um, first of all, do you think any kind of business can benefit from a recommender system or is it only just B2C? Ooh, well, I wouldn't say any business can, but, um, you know, it's obviously a, a useful thing. I mean, like it depends mainly on the size of your catalog, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you if you're like the New York Times and you have like a jillion articles and, you know, somehow they're all still timely, which isn't actually the case, mm -hmm. um, you know, great. A recommender system might help people find, you know, content that's relevant to their interests. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe a magazine would be more of a relevant example there. But if you're just running a little like mom and pop you know, e-commerce store where you're sending where you're selling like, you know, uh, five greeting cards that you've made by hand, a recommender system <laughs> isn't going to be helpful. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Like you'd be better served just like manually creating those pairings, you know, based on your human intuition than by trying to like get build some algorithm that's not going to have enough data to work with in the first place. Okay. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Makes total sense. And tell us a bit about the difference between when you have a recommender system that 
looks at um, content. Like, for instance, you are as an individual, you consume certain content or you purchase certain items. And then it looks at similarities between items to recommend to you mm -hmm. um, versus recommender systems that look at your similarities as an individual to other individuals. And then it looks mm -hmm. at what purchases they made, what content they consumed and makes recommendations that way. Yeah, I mean, that's basically what we call user-based uh, user collaborative filtering as opposed to item-based collaborative filtering. Mm -hmm. So the idea of user-based collaborative filtering is that instead of finding similar items, you find similar users by flipping the problem on its head, basically. Mm -hmm. And then you recommend stuff that the similar users like that you didn't uh, indicate an interest in yet. Mm -hmm. uh, that works, too. Uh, the problem is that people are more fickle than things, right? So... Before I said that a math book will always be similar to a math book, but uh, you know, Carol might al not always be similar to Frank. Like, you know, yeah. I might go off and get interested in astronomy tomorrow and like say, forget about all the state of science stuff. Mm -hmm. so, which you are, you know, which you are interested in astronomy, which is really cool. <laughs> that is my latest uh, side hobby for sure. But mm -hmm. uh, still, still sticking with the the big data stuff for now. <laughs> that's yeah. my day job. Okay, and so yeah, people are more fickle, and so therefore it's uh, it's harder to create those uh, recommender systems. Is that is that what you're saying? I wouldn't say it's harder. It's actually exactly the same technique, just you know, flipping the dimensions uh, mm -hmm. one for the other. But the results aren't going to be as good. I would I would posit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Gotcha. Um, okay, is there any other types of recommender system as uh, you know, in addition to the user based and item based collaborative filtering? Any, you know more innovative or newer experimental types of recommender systems that you can share with us? Yeah, definitely. Uh, before I forget, though, on the previous point, another downside of user-based uh, collaborative filtering is that there's usually more users than things in a given website. So, you know, you have much greater computing requirements to actually compute user similarities and item similarities. Interesting. Uh, Nurin say that about Amazon, though. They have so many things that they sell. Like it's a debatable. They question. do. Um, it, it, yeah. I mean, I actually don't know what their current numbers are, but um, you're, you're right. It's probably not that far off at this point. They sell mm -hmm. everything you can imagine, and then some. <laughs> That's crazy. I think there's still more people in the universe than things that they can buy. And so. and there's there's new new things that are popping up. Like for instance, uh, I'm here in uh, I'm in uh, Bali right now, and people use this thing called AliExpress. You know, mm. from China. I'm not sure if it's uh, related to uh, Alibaba or not. But then there's also Alibaba. There's eBay and you now Amazon seems to be. I was thinking about this the other day. Amazon seems to be very dominant in uh, the U.S., uh, Australia. Now they are in Australia as well. Some uh, European countries, but more in in the Asia space, in the Asia market, something that people don't realize that like there's these other players that are gaining so much momentum. They're growing so fast that. Um, there's some countries here where uh, the people haven't even heard of Amazon and yet yeah. they're shopping online, buying everything. Like even in China, um, what's it called? That platform, WeChat, I think. Like you can get mm -hmm. anything on WeChat. You can get a car washed through WeChat. It's ridiculous. It's crazy how, like, um, how big these things have gotten. Uh, and yet we just simply don't hear about them for now until they come and start disrupting um, the normal world that we are used to living in. Absolutely. I mean, right when I left Amazon was when they were trying to get into the Asian market a little bit more. And uh, I mean, it's been a real challenge for pretty much every U.S. tech company that I can think of. Right. I mean, it's just a completely different political climate, completely different culture. And unless you partner with a big uh, company that's out there existing already, which is hard to do, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, it, it's hard to break in there for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right. And uh, so 
uh, what about the different recommender systems, like new innovative? Yeah. Systems? Yeah, I mean, kind of like the, the thing that evolved after collaborative filtering was uh, what we call model-based methods. So basically matrix factorization. Mm -hmm. uh, so the idea is, you know, if you can think of the recommendation problem as multiplying two matrices together, that's basically like your matrix of interest as an individual by some, you know, matrix that, you know, ties those interests to other things. Uh, that's just another way of approaching the problem, basically. Uh, so we have things like uh, SVM that are used for that, um, SVD rather. Uh, SVD++ is a specific variation on SVD that's used for recommender systems that has really good results. Well, and what does SVD stand for? Uh, singular value decomposition. So basically it's a matrix factorization technique. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, that was basically one of the winning uh, approaches in what they call the Netflix prize a while ago. I don't know if you've ever heard of that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, like Netflix put out this, I think it was a $1 million bounty, was it, if I remember mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, for anyone that could like make a recommender system that was, I, I'd have to look at the number, but I think it was 10% better than what they had mm -hmm. uh, measured by RMSE score. And as I recall, their winning uh, entry actually used uh, SVD as part of their solution. It was actually more of a, a hybrid uh, approach, but that was part of how they did it. Yeah. So, you know, that was kind of like, you know, the next generation of recommender uh, algorithms at that point. And after that, we entered the age of, you know, deep learning, right? So now it's all about uh, how do I use a neural network to solve this problem? And that's where we get into things like uh, Amazon Destiny. And that's also how uh, companies like uh, YouTube are doing it as well. They published a really interesting paper that details exactly how they're doing their recommendations uh, using a deep neural network. Mm -hmm. Why do you think they're not afraid to disclose uh, their intellectual property like that? Well, I mean, they're part of Google and Google's always kind of like, you know, had this open uh, academia friendly uh, stance. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think it's mostly just a company culture thing. Mm -hmm. uh, plus, you know, they realize that nobody has their data. So mm -hmm. one thing that I learned at Amazon is, you know, you can have the, the quality of your data matters way more than the quality of your algorithm. <laughs> mm -hmm. And at Amazon, if you know everything that everybody's actually bought that they've actually spent their money on, you're not going to get better data on their actual interest than that, right? Mm -hmm. So having that powerful interest data to start with means that you can do pretty much anything on the algorithm side and still get awesome results. Mm -hmm. And I think the same is probably true of YouTube as well. Um, you know, they, they actually know if you're actually watching a video and for how long did you actually stick with it all the way through and they can use that uh, view data to actually figure out what you're actually interested in, right? Mm. Yeah, th this ties into an interesting question that value, and this is for probably business owners out there and for um, heads of departments and executives, that value of your, the value is not in your algorithms, the value is in your data. I right. find, you know, still to this day, companies sometimes sit there and think that they're going to create some miraculous world changing algorithm they're super protective of it they're you know either pa patented or uh in most cases they keep it as a from from what i understand they, they keep it as a trade secret so that nobody even the patent office doesn't get access to it but realistically we live in a world where google publishes more than one research paper per day about mm -hmm. machine learning, AI, you know, computer vision, deep learning, so per day, that's crazy. So there's no way, and that's all open source, it's all Python based predominantly, you know, TensorFlow or PyTorch for Facebook. Like those things are open source, you can go and download them and there's no way you're gonna beat Google. There's no way you're going to invent something that's um, you know, so bespoke that Google's never gonna be able to create that on their side. 
and uh, it's just going to take so much resources and effort from a side, from the you know perspective of a small, medium, even large business. It's just much easier to go out there, read these research papers, extract what you need, apply it. It doesn't matter that it's open source because at the end of the day, the value is not an algorithm. The value is in the data that you have. Absolutely. And, you know, I think another motivation for them to share this research is from a recruiting standpoint, too. Right. You know, they want to uh, get smart engineers out there learning about how to use their systems and, you know, get excited about them. And hopefully they can recruit them to, you know, work at Google. I mean, that's ultimately their goal. I mean, that's really like the number one concern of these tech companies. They just cannot hire enough experts in these fields to meet their demand. Yeah, yeah, totally. And um, for recommender systems, um, you like we, we've seen this evolution that you kindly walked us through on how, how they've changed. What I'm noticing is that they're getting really good. They're getting crazy. Like as a user, you know, like I go on Netflix and I mm-hmm. something pops up and I'm like, whoa, that's really cool. I didn't even know that exists. I'm so... So, you know, glad that I found out about this or um, I gave this example, like I think a couple podcasts ago where, you know, my mom has a special relationship with YouTube that she just doesn't even search for videos herself. She just relies on YouTube to recommend things. And then she's like, she already knows she's going to love it. And she just goes with the flow and just watches whatever Hmm. recommendation comes up. And so when whenever somebody else touches her iPad, she gets, you know, a bit protective of it because she doesn't (laughs) want to. Yes, I know the feeling. So my dad's interests in in her YouTube because that's going to mess with her recommender system. So examples like that illustrate that they've gotten really good, very powerful, and they know sometimes that's better than ourselves. What kind of future do you see for recommender systems? Like where is this whole space going? And if it's already that good, what can we expect to appear next? Well, I think, you know, you're right in that the algorithms aren't going to get that much more better. You know, like already I would say that the difference in quality between, you know, deep learning systems and some of the older systems or matrix factorization are pretty minimal, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. Really, it comes down to the quality of the data, like you were saying. Mm-hmm. So the big leap forward is going to be as people amass more and more of this data to learn more and more about you. Mm-hmm. But now we're like starting to get into this world of ethics, right, and privacy. So, you know, it, it's going to be interesting times for sure because... At the same time, we don't want these, you, you don't want YouTube to know everything about you necessarily, mm-hmm. but you still want good recommendations from YouTube, right? You, you can't have both. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm not really sure how that's going to play out right now. It's, uh, it's, it's an interesting time for that. Mm. What do you think of this notion? I was discussing this with somebody, um, like I think a few podcasts ago as well, but love your uh, opinion on this, that 100 years from now, privacy will be such a foreign concept. People will be looking back on it and be just, thinking what why did why was this even a thing what did privacy even mean what's the definition of privacy because we're so rapidly moving to a world where people especially millennials are trading in their Mm -hmm. privacy and anything that any information they have on themselves trading it in for better services better products better um, you know user experiences and and that's not even a question to them so this this whole privacy issue um, from my conversations I see it as a more of a um, my generation, older generations, that like that's the concern for us. But um, the new generations that are coming around, like they don't really worry about that stuff so much. So right now, yes, there's some like legal and struggles and um, barriers that are being put in place. But there is a theory that in 100 years from now, there will be no such thing and everything will be completely publicly available, fully exposed. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think, like you said, the younger generations are already there. Like, they don't really have a concept of what privacy even means, right, Mm -hmm. at least online. Um, You know, they definitely want physical privacy still. But um, 
online, it's not even a thing. It's not a concept. Like, what, is, what does that even mean to them? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we're already there to some extent, honestly. Um, the question is, you know, what do we do with all that information that people have given up? Mm-hmm. And, you know, if governments start abusing that information, you know, to persecute people or something, then people are going to care about privacy real fast. <laughs> um, hopefully that won't happen. Um, but the other thing, too, is, you know, we're using all this personal information to and this is a very real problem right now, you know, filter bubbles, you know, trying to create these echo chambers online where we're using a lot of the same technologies that we developed way back in the day to try to recommend better books to you um, to figure out what are your interests personally and how do we connect you with more news and information and people and, uh, you know, viewpoints that are consistent with what you already like. You know, this is how you end up in these online bubbles. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's very much a, a pressing issue right now. And you have people, you know, quitting Facebook because they don't want any more part of it. You know, mm-hmm. so that's what I'm kind of talking about when I say it'll be interesting to see where this all goes. I mean, I myself quit Facebook in January because of this stuff. And I know a lot of my friends have as well. So, uh, as so for millennials, they were more about that. I didn't know you worked at Facebook. Oh no, no. I mean, I meant I quit Facebook as a user. Oh, as a user. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I deleted my account. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. Mm, no, no. Yeah. Definitely. Some things, some of these things are very controversial. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. And, uh, but one question that you might be able to um, help guide our audience in in the right direction is if somebody wants to get into the space of recommender systems, right? Like there's, mm-hmm. there's lots of spa- spaces in data science, machine learning, deep learning uh, that are, uh, sorry, and big data that are very exciting. But I guess recommender systems is, is one of those that is kind of on the verge of these converging or uh, like... Uh, on the overlap of these converging areas that we talked about of um, big data, there's like in recommender systems, there's often like these these big data lakes, big, uh, there's a lot right. of data. And at the same time, machine learning and um, data science. So it could be a, an interesting place for people to dive into if they want to be in between these fields. So what would mm-hmm. your advice be for somebody who wants to get into recommender systems, uh, but doesn't have much experience in the space, zero to not much, where should they start? What they should they look into? And in general, how would you recommend going about getting into this space of recommender systems? Well, I would say first and foremost, be a good software developer. Um, you know, when I was at Amazon, we hired software developer engineer, software development engineers primarily. We didn't really care what their specialization was. We just cared that they were smart enough to write code and do it well. And we figured if you can do that, you can learn anything because this stuff changes every freaking day, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we didn't really focus on hiring people for specific skills. Like in my case, they hired a guy that did, you know, visual simulation in video games uh, and, and just taught him how to do this stuff when he came in. Wow. Um, so, you know, step one is to be a good software engineer. And, you know, maybe that means Python. If you want to start off easy, that's certainly, you know, still a great choice. Uh, but just get proficient in some sort of programming if you aren't already. Mm-hmm. Uh, beyond that, you're going to need some background in linear algebra, you know, to understand the algorithms. You, you need to have at least that level of mathematical background to understand what's going on. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and from there, you can start to actually learn the actual uh, algorithms and techniques, you know, either from my course or a book or, or however you want to do it or online resources. Everyone learns different ways. That's cool. Um, and then you can actually start playing around with like small data sets, you know, like on your own PC. Uh, one that I like to use is called the movie lens data set. Don't know mm-hmm. if you know that one. Uh, basically they have like, really? Yeah. Go to a uh, grouplens.org, I think it is. And they have this, uh, free data set of movie ratings that I love to play with probably cause I used to work at IMDb. So I have a soft spot for movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
but they have different sizes you can mess with. So they have like a hundred thousand rating data set and then they have like, you know, a 20 million data set. And so you can work your way up to bigger and bigger data, but you can start just playing around, you know, on small data sets, uh, get a sense of how these algorithms work, experiment with them, try different ways of doing it. That's really what it's all about. Just experimenting with different ideas and different tweaks and, you know, different parameter tuning and well, you know, hyperparameter tuning, I guess is the, uh, the technical term for it all these days. Um, and then you can think about scaling it up, right? <laughs> yep. So then you can start to think about how do I blend this with tools like Apache Spark? If I'm going to be using uh, neural networks, kind of use TensorFlow to distribute this across a cluster, that would be kind of like the final stage. And once you're at that stage, I would say, you know, start messing around, do some freelance work, um, you know, prove that you can actually do this and build something. And at that point, you will probably be able to find a job in this field. So the jobs are there. People want to hire people for recommender systems. Yeah, I mean, they're central to uh, a lot of the big technical companies out there, right? I mean, Amazon, like we talked about, huge part of their revenue. Uh, YouTube, a huge part of their views. Uh, Netflix, it's what they're all about. Like their entire company is about recommendations fundamentally. They're, they're just built around the whole thing. And a lot of people don't realize that, you know? I mean, yes, I mean, you know, deep neural networks are hot, but really it's recommender systems that these companies are built around and they cannot find enough people who know this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's really great advice. Thank you so much. Um, at this stage, I wanted to shift gears a little bit and talk about what uh, you mentioned just before we started the podcast, that at Amazon, you were part of the hiring and recruiting process. would love to learn a bit more about that, and maybe there's some tips and tricks you can share for people to get hired at Amazon or maybe even beyond that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, so part of my duties at Amazon is I was what they called a bar raiser. And this is basically a role where you spend a lot of your time doing interviews, you know, both phone interviews and in-person interviews, mostly in-person interviews. So whenever there's an interview loop at Amazon, uh, there is one person on that loop called a bar raiser that interviews you. And it's not necessarily someone that's in the team you're interviewing with or even the same department. Uh, their role is to sort of like make sure that Amazon standards for hiring are being applied consistently across the entire company. So... Mm. That, that was, I was, I was that guy. <laughs> uh, so it meant that, you know, I had veto authority over every hire that, uh, came across, you know, my desk basically. And I led all the hiring uh, discussions where we decided whether or not to hire someone. Right. So, uh, a lot of influence there. And as a result, I ended up interviewing over a thousand people, I think while I was there, some crazy number like wow. that. Yeah. So as far as tips go for, you know, getting into Amazon, my, my number one tip is to always think in terms of the customer. Um, mm-hmm. It's not just lip service when Amazon says that they're customer focused. It really does permeate their entire culture. And any time that you can tie a question or a problem that you're solved from the viewpoint of the customer, you're going to get major brownie points. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So, you know, anytime you're asked to design a system, work backwards from the customer experience. You know, start with what will the customer get out of the system? What do they want to see? What are their requirements? How fast does it need to be for them? Right. Uh, what what results do they want to see? And then, you know, figure out what technology you'd have to build to deliver that experience. Don't start from the bottom. You know, don't say, I know this cool algorithm and I would use this cool algorithm and build it out and hopefully customers would like it. That's the wrong answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, always start with the customer experience is tip number one. Mm-hmm. Great tip. Great tip. What else? Well, you know, you can go online and look for Amazon's leadership principles, Um, you know, and and customer obsession is number one, but there's others as well. And I would just encourage you to familiarize yourself with all of those leadership principles. Uh, The other ones are ownership, invent and simplify, are write a lot, learn and be curious, 
uh, insist on high standards, think big and like really internalize what these all mean and come up with stories that you can talk about where you've exhibited these qualities on your own. Because, mm-hmm. uh, you, you know, again, you're going to get a lot of interviews with managers and uh, bar raisers like myself who aren't necessarily part of the team that you're interviewing. You're, you're going to be put on. And these are the things they're really looking for. You know, do you fit with Amazon's culture and way of thinking? Obviously, you need to be technically competent, competent as well. Um, you know, it's going to be a very long and grueling day there of uh, writing code on the whiteboard and, you know, solving design problems on the whiteboard. Uh, so you, by all means, you have to be ready to do that. You know, you have to have really strong coding skills, uh, really strong system design skills. That's, you know, going to be the case for any interview. But what's different about Amazon is they actually care about <laughs> what they say about, you know, their their values and principles that they live by. And you need to demonstrate that yourself. Very interesting. And what would you say has been the biggest uh, mistake that you've seen like recurring on interviews that people make? Oh, man, you know, um, you'd be amazed. It's just like not knowing how to code. Um, (laughs) No way. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, you'd be amazed uh, how many, especially in phone interviews, usually they get weeded out by the time they actually come in house. Yeah. Uh, But we used to have a have you heard of FizzBuzz? Nope. Okay, this is like the one of the interviews questions that we use for uh, screening out people, and it, it's widely known, so I'm not giving away anything secret here. The problem is this. Um, iterate through the numbers 1 through 100 and write code that if it's an even number, print fizz, uh, and if it's like an odd number, fi- print buzz or something like that. Like, I forgot the exact structure of the problem, but it's just that simple, right? No, there's um, no, like, no There's cash. no trick. No, yeah. no, that's it. Okay. Uh, about, I'd say about it's 50% like, of the people couldn't do it. No way, That that's like a... Five minute exercise. Yeah, yeah. It uh, you'd be amazed. Crazy. <laughs> so uh, make sure you can write code, guys. You know that's uh, that's my main tip. Uh, but beyond that, you know, just make sure you're well rested. You know, a lot of people come in kind of like low energy because they flew from someplace far away the night before and you know didn't have enough coffee or whatever. But um, you know, it's you just got to have a lot of stamina to get through the day if you do come in house. So you know, make sure you're rested. You know, drink whatever beverages you want to drink to stay alert. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, whatever hack you have to do to make sure that you uh, keep your energy level up throughout a, throughout a very challenging day. Very interesting. So, know how to code and keep your energy up. We're, wasn't expecting those two tips um, as as the most common mistakes. All right, and uh, what would you say is like the biggest? Um, I don't know, biggest advantage of somebody who comes in for an interview, if like they have this skill or have this experience or can demonstrate something that like they're almost right away, everybody knows, okay, this is the person. Like, have you ever had that feeling? Like, you see a person, you haven't interviewed them much, but almost right away you can tell this person is going to make a great addition to the team. We definitely want them on board. Ooh. You know, I'm always careful in those situations because sometimes your gut is wrong, right? Mm. You know, like, I mean, human brains are, you know, fickle things, as I'm sure you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. now that we know how to simulate them to some extent. Um, so, you know, I, I've, I've, I've been a manager long enough to know that it is very easy to make bad hiring decisions on someone that looked great on paper or like came across as very charismatic, right? Mm-hmm. You really need to separate that charisma for how are they going to be able to interact with your team, you know, are they going to like be a, you know, quote unquote team player with that doesn't have a huge ego to deal with, uh, things like that. So, um, I've never like been in a situation where like, oh my God, I talked to this person once and we absolutely have to hire them like right now. Um, but after two or three interviews, yeah, there've definitely been cases where I'm like, we really got to get this person here, yeah. uh, pull out all the stops, you know, like make them an awesome offer, like whatever they want, give them twice that. Well, we actually do that. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the, the, when it comes to stock grants and things like that, they often had quite a bit of discretion as to uh, what they could offer people to get people that they really wanted. 
Gotcha, gotcha. And what has been the most common trigger for you to use your veto power and not hire somebody that maybe even others thought was a good oh. candidate? Yeah, I mean, after doing that many interviews, you kind of like learn, you know, what a good engineer looks like. And I, I guess the thing that like would probably give me the most pause would be someone who pretended they that they had more experience and, and knowledge than they really did. You know, mm -hmm. like they're kind of like a little bit deceptive on their resume. Like I can uncover that pretty quickly. That's that's not cool. Yeah. Uh, so don't do that. Or someone whose coding uh, ability I thought, thought just wasn't up to snuff, right? Yeah. The the main problem that the reason that the bar raiser role existed is because there's huge pressure to hire at Amazon or any big technology company because there's just not enough good engineers in the world to go around, and a lot of these teams are really desperate to fill positions. You know that that is like their number one goal is to just you know fill fill seats within their team and get more engineers working on whatever they have to deliver, and we my role is to make sure that they don't get so desperate that they lower their standards, right? Mm. So uh, that's what that's all about. It's interesting, isn't it, that there's so many, as you say, seats in uh, companies and they like they just so eager to hire people. And on the other hand, we have such a huge pool of candidates, so, so many data scientists, engineers out there who want to get hired. Uh, mm -hmm. it's just like the, the bottleneck is that weeding out process and finding, you know, the talented people, which there's plenty of as well, but they're rare, right? Like compared to, you know, millions or hundreds of thousands of people who want to get hired, those, uh, you know, hundreds or dozens of people that are really talented who still also want to get hired, they really need to stand out somehow for, you know, like if they had a beacon above their head that, Hey, I'm yeah. talented, you'd hire them in a heartbeat, but it's like, it's not that case. You have to go through this process. So is there anything that talented people who, whom I'm assuming many of are listening to this podcast or like most of the people listening to this podcast are, you care about their careers, careers already by definition because they're you know, listening to um, career advice on, on these topics. Is there anything that they can do to help recruiters such as yourself or such as who you were back in your past life of Amazon to identify them to make you know, that whole process easier and you know that match happen faster yeah I mean it's like you said you got to build that beacon above your head right mm. so here's the reality of, of the of the situation everyone applies to Amazon and Google and all these big companies and they don't even look at the resumes that are submitted to them because there's just so many of them and weeding through them all is like impossible Instead, they will come to you, right? So you want to make sure that you've done something that's going to catch the attention of a hiring manager or a recruiter at the company that you want to get uh, hired at. One way to do that is to know somebody, right? Like, so if you, you know, know somebody who already works at the company you want to work with, oftentimes they get like, you know, referral bonuses if someone that they recommend gets hired. And that's probably the best way to get your foot in the door. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so really scour your social network, scour LinkedIn, see if you know anybody or if you have a friend of a friend at the company that you want to get into because that might be your best uh, way to get noticed. But beyond that, if you don't, um, you know, make sure you're winning coding competitions. Make sure you have stuff on GitHub that people can find. Uh, you know, get published. Um, you know, put out a blog. Uh, make sure you're on LinkedIn, you know, and having the right uh, keywords that they're looking for there. Because the recruiters are looking for you. They're not waiting for you to come to them, right? Um, beyond that, you know, I mean, obviously more traditional channels like college recruiting is, a, is an important source of new hires for these companies as well. Uh, you know, career fairs and stuff at colleges or 
obviously if you graduate from Stanford, you're probably going to get a call from all of these people, right? So, uh, but not everybody can afford to go to Stanford. So for everyone else, you just have to like make sure that your profile stands out online and your accomplishments um, are easy for them to find. Fantastic. And I just want to add to that, that in the process of you putting up all these things online, whether on GitHub, on Medium, blog posts, videos, whatnot, you're going to make connections, right? Like mm -hmm. people who are already at Amazon, they're not just sitting there and twiddling their thumbs and just uh, doing Amazon work or you know, whatever other company they're in. They also go out there and they also read. They also want to know new what's what's been happening in the competition space, what's new on GitHub, what's new, uh, what's a new I don't know, recommender system that somebody's exploring. So inevitably, the more stuff you put out there, uh, sooner or later, somebody from Amazon is going to read it and they might ask you a question and then you talk right. to them and then you can build that connection. So you don't have to just go and like um, put yourself this target. I have to know somebody on Amazon. Even if you do like as Frank, which you, which you said, like if, even if you do this part of just building your online presence, ev eventually you'll build these con connections in a very natural way. And sooner or later, somebody from Amazon or Apple or wherever else you want to get into is going to come across your way. So yeah, it, it, they, these two come hand in hand and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy as long as you invest the time and effort and energy into it. Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, everybody at these companies are invested in hiring. It's not just the hiring managers and recruiters. And if they come across something you've done online and they like it, they very well may reach out to you. So you're absolutely right. Fantastic. Well, thanks a lot, Frank. Uh, we're we slowly come to the end of this podcast. And um, super, super pumped about the chats that we had. Um, before I do let you go, please tell us a couple of places where you, our listeners, our audience can follow you, get to know you better and see what new things you'll get up to in the coming months and years. Yeah, I mean, uh, if you want to check out what I'm up to, you can head to my website, which is uh, sundog-education.com. And from there, you can follow me on whatever social media you wish. Um, and also, you'll uh, find, uh, we got to give a tip of the hat to Manning Publications at manning.com. And you can find my uh, couple of new courses from them under their live video tab there. Uh, Elasticsearch 6 the ultimate and the ultimate introduction to big data are found there. Fantastic. And is it okay for our audience to connect with you on LinkedIn as well? Absolutely. The more the merrier. So bring them on. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, Frank, thanks so much. One last question I have for you today is what's a book that you can recommend to our listeners that's changed your life? Ooh, that's changed my life. Um, you know, the, the most recent one that I read is a big, thick book called... Uh, Let's see, I have it right here. Recommender System Handbook. And it's basically a huge collection of papers from, you know, various researchers in the field, like including Netflix and, uh, and people like that. So uh, as I was preparing my recommender system course, that was a hugely valuable resource for getting caught up on the current state of the art. And for someone new to the field, I think it's sort of required reading for uh, figuring out what's out there and getting a, a broad lay of the land of the, the techniques that are being used today. Awesome. Is this by Francesco Ricci? Uh, it up on Google. Yeah, it's published by Springer, I think. Springer, yeah. Published by Springer. Yeah, found it. Uh, pull it out here of my bookshelf here. Yeah, Francisco Ricci, that's right. They're the editors. Okay. It's not cool. cheap, but it's worth it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely. Best things in life, you know. Are sometimes yep. free, sometimes you got to buy them, and then they'll change your life. Totally. Okay. On that note, Frank, thanks so much once again for coming on the show and sharing all the insights and knowledge. Really cool chat. And yeah, 
catch you soon. Maybe at GDM Live this year. You going? No, I'm not going this year, but uh, definitely next year. Okay, no worries. Right. Well, catch you around, man. Thanks so much for coming right. on the show. All right, good talking to you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, for being part of this conversation. My favorite part was about the convergence of data science and big data. It's very interesting how these two fields are becoming more and more intertwined. And uh, of course, there were plenty of other great and useful insights throughout the podcast. A huge shout out goes to Manning Publications, uh, which are hosting some of Frank's courses. So you can find Frank either on Manning Publications or on Udemy. And if you haven't taken any of his courses yet, highly recommend checking them out, especially if you're interested in getting into the space of big data uh, after today's podcast. Uh, as usual, you can get all the show notes at superdatascience.com slash 265. That's www.superdatascience.com, one word, slash 265. Uh, there you'll find all of the resources, materials that were mentioned on this episode, plus the transcript for the episode, and plus, of course, any links to Frank's social media where you can get in touch with him, you can follow his career, or simply check out his courses. On that note, thank you so much for being here today. I am very grateful that you're part of the Super Data Science podcast and the Super Data Science journey and the community that we're building. If you don't, if you're not aware yet, then we actually just launched a uh, Slack channel for Super Data Science members. So if you're a member at Super Data Science, you must have gotten an email. Make sure to join that Slack community that we're building. It's not just one Slack channel, it's actually a multitude of Slack channels in a Slack community uh, where you can chat to each other, to me, to instructors. And if you're not a Super Data Science member yet, then make sure to check out superdatascience.com where we're adding new features all the time. On that note, thank you so much and I'll look forward to seeing you back here next time. Until then, happy analyzing. <laughs>